Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the EOA Better Together webinar. This is our eighth conversation in our weekly series um, of engagement with our members and with the wider employer and sector and the wider business community. You're all very welcome again today. Um, just a few housekeeping rules for those who have not joined us before. If you want to raise a question for me or for any of our panellists this morning, there's a Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. If you use that, um, I will see those questions as will the panellists um, and we'll seek to try and answer as many of those as we can. If you've just got a comment about what you hear, then please also use that Q&A function. If you've got any technical issues, then use the chat function and somebody will be able to uh, directly engage with you and hopefully resolve any problems you're having. So as usual, I'm joined this morning by three guests who are going to engage in a lively discussion um, after they share some of their own experiences of the last few weeks of working and running businesses in this very challenging time. But first of all, I'd like to start, as I usually do, with a bit of a reflection of what's been happening this week. So we started on Sunday with the announcement from the Prime Minister about the strategy um, for lock for releasing us from the lockdown and that gradual recovery um, it's fair to say it was a very cautious um, and uh, phased approach that was uh, suggested by the prime minister which was confirmed in the strategy that was published on monday and highly conditional on the new alert level system that we'll all become very familiar with, I'm sure, um, which will guide us and the government through what is actually possible and practical to achieve over the coming months. Um, alongside that, there were some very specific guidelines published for eight different workplace environments. Um, so any of you listening um, will be able to find details of that on our COVID-19 page, which will signpost you to the right government uh, portal. So for every workplace type, you can now get clear guidance, um, which will be enforced by the health and safety executive, we are told. So it's really important that every business is able to review what that guidance is specific to their environment. And of course, for many of you, you may have more than one environment. You may have an office and a factory, for example. There was also guidance on uh, social distancing again, some new information there, and on transport, which of course is really important for most of us in terms of how our employees get to work. We were then um, on Tuesday um, uh, delighted to hear, as I'm sure many of you are, that the job retention scheme is now going to be extended to October. Um, with some changes to it from August, it'll stay in its current uh, state until uh, the end of July and um, from August there is an expectation that employees sorry employers will need to make some sort of contribution and probably some flexibility around uh, employees returning to work on a part-time basis so some good news there for the economy um, which obviously helped to balance the bad news yesterday that we all heard regarding the state of the economy and the first quarter results which clearly show we are now in a recession and some quite scary headlines this morning about what that will mean going forwards. However, that said, uh, the government's scheme, the, the JRS scheme is definitely um, a highlight, I think, in the support that they've been providing, along with the other schemes. So the bounce back loan, um, there's now uh, approximately 270,000 businesses engaging in that, um, over eight and a half billion pounds being uh, loaned out to businesses. Uh, the Sybil scheme, there's now um, over 36,000 businesses um, using that scheme and £6 million out there. 
um, and the large business um, loan scheme, um, about £360 million now in circulation. So a lot of support out there from the government, um, but clearly some quite concerning times ahead for all of us. Um, but lastly, just to finish on some good news for the employer-owned sector, um, we had a transition to employer-ownership this week. One of our members, the McGee Group, uh, they're a family business originally, a construction business that transitioned to employer-ownership this week. So if anybody from there has joined us this morning, uh, congratulations and you're very welcome to the EOA. Um, and it was good to hear about another couple of members in the same sector, interestingly, in construction. Uh, so Lindham Group, uh, based in Lincolnshire, uh, they won a new contract this week for affordable homes in Spalding in Lincolnshire. And Arup were highlighting and showcasing some new pedestrian simulation software. Um, which will be critically important, I imagine, as uh, organisations and developers start to plan um, developments across towns and cities where social distancing will become the norm. So some good news from the sector. So um, that's a bit of a roundup, and it's my pleasure now to move on to this morning's webinar. Um, absolutely delighted. We've got three brilliant speakers again joining us this morning, and thank you very much to the three of them for sparing time. Um, we've got to focus on planning for the future. So obviously it'll be front of mind for many of your businesses thinking about how do you bring employees back into the workplace? How do you start to plan? Um, what should you be thinking about? And I'm delighted we've got, first of all, uh, Ed Stubbs, who's the Managing Director of Gripple and a Director of Loadhog. You're very welcome this morning, Ed. Joining Thank us you very from, much. Joining us from sunny Sheffield, I hope it is today. It is indeed, yes. Okay, well, I'm going to pass on to Ed now. He's going to share some thoughts and reflections on what Gripple have been doing over the last few months and, most importantly, what their plans are and uh, uh, thoughts for the future. Over to you, Ed. Okay, thank you very much, Deb. Thank you for having me, and uh, good morning to everyone on the webinar. Um, so I'm going to tell you a brief bit about Gripple, what we've been doing so far, and then some of our thoughts in terms of the future. So for those of you who don't know, um, Gripple is a 90 million turnover manufacturer of wire joiner and suspension products. Um, we operate in two key markets, construction and agriculture. Um, currently around 850 employees, about 50% of which are based out of our five UK manufacturing sites and the rest out of 11 overseas manufacturing and sales facilities. We're also part of the Glide group of companies, all 100% employee owned and headquartered in Sheffield. And the combined turnover of the group is around 125 million with around 1,000 uh, employees. So um, how are we doing so far? Um, pleasingly, we've, we've continued to operate all of our facilities globally, uh, with the exception of New Delhi in India and Bergamo in Italy. Um, all of those uh, with around about 50% of staff at home, and of course, with all of the necessary measures in place. Uh, on day one, we thought it was important to announce that uh, no one would lose their job, and everyone would continue to be paid in full um, throughout the crisis. And we also announced that company share trading would be frozen, um, as would the share price for the duration of 2020. Um, quarter two sales at Gripple, um, we think will be around 25% down, and we will be profitable. That's much better than we feared. Uh, and on the back of um, significant efforts from all of our employees, uh, and also supported by um, buoyant sales from our agricultural business, 
and construction sales into temporary hospitals, including all of the uh, UK Nightingale hospitals. Uh, we've been successful in securing the Seabill loans and large uh, company loan schemes from the UK and accessing similar schemes uh, overseas. Uh, we work quickly and effectively with Barclays UK to do that. And although they could be um, blowing hot air, they did tell us that we were their first UK customer to get sanctioned on the large company loan scheme. Um, group performance is also very encouraging and is driven largely by Loadhog, which is our plastic transit packaging manufacturer, um, who benefited from securing a very large order with Amazon USA at the start of the year. Uh, and also um, through increases in volume in our grocery retail supply chain um, business. In terms of the future, um, the immediate future, as Deb uh, mentioned in her introduction, is um, about establishing the new normal. Um, we actually made the decision two weeks ago to get people back into work. Working from home has been very successful and I think proved very productive in most areas, uh, but it's also proved very intensive for those individuals and uh, we want to make sure that they're re-engaged uh, with the workplace and their colleagues um, moving forwards. Um, longer term, we expect developments in the market that will support our existing um, product offerings. From a Gripple perspective, we're selling a lot of protective screens uh, packaged up with our hanging and installation kits. We think that that will be a long-term opportunity and we'll develop a full product range to take it. And it also aligns nicely with um, existing plans we had in place to try and gain more traction and more business in the shop fitting and signage markets. Secondly, when uh, capital is available, um, we expect, as I expect most people do, that um, people will continue to invest in automation um, to drive efficiency, but also to drive business resilience. Um, I'm told machines can't get ill, or if they can get ill, they can't spread viruses. Um, and that will certainly support the development of our fledgling Gripple automation business, which is a machine design and build business. And it also aligns with Loadhog continued investment in developing packaging and handling equipment for automated picking and packing and home delivery supply chains. Um, and thirdly, in the market, we believe uh, we'll continue to win more business based on our business model sustainability uh, and local supply chain um, over and above our competitors and certainly since the crisis started that has been proved to be the case in the USA where we're winning quite substantial business from um, competitors who import from China. Internally uh, we've we have some renewed focus on some existing aspects of the business and some new commitment to, to other ones um, so we've been hugely supported through the crisis um, through a how vertically integrated we are we manufacture the vast majority of our components ourselves we've suffered no supply chain issues as a result mitigated potential increases in costs and definitely gained new business uh, and also b because of how diversified we are our declining construction sales um, has been softened um, by phased shutdowns and uh, reopenings uh, in different countries at different times around the world um, we also operate in more than one core market. Uh, our construction sales are down by 50%, but we're ha having the best year ever uh, on our agricultural um, business. And as a group, we also benefit from that type of diversity, um, best illustrated by the Loadhog and the Amazon deal that I've already mentioned. 
Um, our vertical integration in the past has always been driven by, in addition to security supply, um, cost, um, quality, generating more jobs within our employee-owned owned businesses. And uh, the diverse nature of our business really in the past has been driven by um, growth. So moving forwards, we want to do more of both. We have a 25% target that 25% uh, of sales have to come from products less than four years old. Um, that's a challenging target anyway, but it's very easy in trying to meet that target to focus on existing routes to market, um, existing applications and sectors. And our challenge um, historically, but more so now in my opinion, is to look broader than that for opportunities more widely uh, and develop more new products in more diverse markets and possibly resulting in more new businesses in the group if necessary. Um, equally, we'll continue with more vertical integration. We still have plenty to go at. Uh, and again, you know, this requires investment, but um, the appeal for me is it drives jobs um, profitability and resilience um, within the existing size of the business. We don't need to drive um, significant growth to secure a payback on those types of investments. And then two other um, new commitments. Um, we've been modeling for some time the prospect of moving to a shorter working week and the uh, experience we've had through uh, lockdown and such a scale of working from home has convinced us of the productivity and the welfare benefits of doing so. Um, so we'll do our homework and a commitment on that will be included in our next year, our next five year planning cycle, which starts in 2021. And then secondly, from a carbon footprint point of view, um, we have a fairly piecemeal approach. We sell our products currently based on them, including 95% less embodied carbon than uh, the traditional products that they're replacing. But in truth, we don't really know what our carbon footprint is. I expect I offset a lot of that benefit with my um, travel around the world. So um, we will articulate a commitment to do the work um, and make and execute a plan to get to, to net zero. When I don't know, but it will be certainly part of the next five-year planning cycle. Um, so that's it from me for now, and uh, I look forward to the discussions to follow. Thanks, Ed. That's really interesting. Um, we've already started to get questions in, but I'm going to hold back on the questions um, because I'm now going to introduce Kirsty Barnes. Kirsty is the coordinator for Lush's Employee Benefit Trust and also leadership support. Um, Kirsty, you're very welcome this morning. Uh, we've just heard from Ed, obviously, Gripple operating in a business to business marketplace. Really interesting now to hear your reflections of a, another global business, but in the business to consumer space. Lovely. Thank you, Deb. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining today. So um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Lush business and how we've been impacted by COVID-19 and what we're doing to manage the impact and adapt for the future. So for some people, Lush is a household name, but for those of you who don't know us very well, here's just a little bit of background on the business. So we were founded 25 years ago and our products are still invented by the founders in the labs above our first ever shop in Paul High Street in Dorset. We're now a £1 billion turnover business and we manufacture our products across five manufacturing sites globally and sell through 935 retail shops and digital channels in 48 countries. And in 2017, we became 10% employee owned through our Lush Employee Benefit Trust. 
Um, so our first experience of being impacted by COVID-19 was in Japan and Hong Kong. At the end of January, we started to see a decline in footfall in our retail shops there as tourism levels dropped as a result of the travel restrictions that were imposed across Asia. The impact of the virus very quickly swept through our global business and by the 14th of April, 833 of our 935 shops were completely closed. And in terms of financial impact, our total brand sales for April were minus 82%. Having this global overview, we've been really lucky to be able to see how each of these markets have been affected by the pandemic. So local government support, local culture and public sentiment have all had a huge part to play in the outcomes for businesses and the local people in all of our markets. But some of these markets have started to slowly reopen. They're really paving the way for the rest of our global teams to learn how we need to adapt to these new retail conditions. With the global situation changing so drastically day to day, our UK board and senior management teams have been meeting daily to discuss the ever-changing global landscape and the situation and make vital decisions to ensure the long-term sustainability of the business and also the safety and the well-being of our staff, of which we have over 20,000 employees across our global business. So um, I think it's safe to say that every business has had some really difficult decisions to make over the last couple of months. And we're often asked what leads the decision-making process in Lush. So the Lush business was founded on a set of core ethical principles, which we like to refer to as our we believe statement. I think Annabelle's just going to bring that slide up so you can all take a look at those. So these core ethical principles have been what have led the decision-making process at Lush for 25 years um, and it's what our founders believed in 25 years ago and it is really the backbone of the business. Um, we also believe in making our mums proud which seems like a, a funny phrase but we often use the analogy if this decision was published in the local gazette tomorrow would your mum be proud which sounds like a really simple concept but reverting to our primitive state and using these core ethical principles and that analogy to lead our decision making process um, we'll, we'll just make sure that when we look back on this situation in months to come we won't have any regret. Um, so what else have we done to manage the impact of this situation? So all government aid packages that apply to us have been taken up across all markets. In the UK, for example, we've furloughed 3,750 members of staff, predominantly from our, our retail um, business. We've been reviewing pay structures alongside the different government schemes in each market, which, which vary um, quite a lot country to country, to make sure that we're providing consistent support across the group for our staff. Um, we've extended, sorry, we've negotiated extended rent payment terms and rent rates with landlords worldwide. And we're doing risk assessments with all of our suppliers and trying to reduce orders and negotiate extended payment terms while also trying to balance us supporting those smaller suppliers to make sure that they too make it out the other side um, with us. We've suspended a lot of our global bonus schemes for our staff and we're reviewing general staffing structures across the group to make sure that we've got the right people in the right places. Um, we're also using our network of 420 new EBT representatives across the Lush Group to make sure that our staff are engaged, informed and up to date with what's going on across the global business. 
And while we can't deny the devastating effect of COVID-19, it has also presented lots of opportunities for the business with a rich history of char charitable giving and being a soap manufacturer we've been able to really support lots of local communities with product donations to healthcare providers and vulnerable members of our community we've got a nice picture um, of some of the our nhs staff and communities across the, the global business with our lush product as we've all paused to prioritise human life, it's offered us the opportunity to take a step back and reflect on our business. So Buckminster Fuller, an American architect, once said, we are called to be the architects of the future, not its victims. And what a perfect expression of where we find ourselves today. Redesigning what the future of our businesses will look like is on the forefront of all of our minds. This has really encouraged us to ask ourselves this series of questions. So are we happy with our business? What are the critical success factors for our industry? What would we like to change? What do we want our business to look like in five or 10 years time? And how do we make that happen? So for example, we've been trying to grow our digital business for a number of years now and suddenly overnight while consumers were converting to online shopping and the whole world was in need of soap, our global digital sales saw exponential growth of over 300% on last year. We responded very quickly by scaling up operations and converting several of our manufacturing sites to digital fulfillment spaces to fulfill these orders. Now, these digital sales we've received while our retail shops have been closed has been crucial to the future success of the business. But what else are we doing to adapt to the new normal? We're taking a good look at our products, so we're thinking about what our consumers really need in these times, with uh, obviously having a huge focus on soaps and hand care. This week we've just launched a new range of hand care boxes, which um, fit nicely through the letterbox, so people are ordering those online as gifts for loved ones that they can't see at the moment. We're thinking about the future of the high street, so many of us know that for too long now, rent deals with retail landlords have been far too expensive. With lots of high street retailers going into administration, this has presented a lovely opportunity for us to approach these landlords and renegotiate some of these rent deals. And we're really trying to move from fixed rent deals to um, rent, which is a percentage of turnover. So what we pay will be dependent on how well um, that re retail location is doing. We also host a very large number of large-scale events each year and we're looking at how we can recreate these experiences through virtual events on digital platforms as I know we're all doing even here. Um, we have shops opening in the majority of our European markets now and we're working on redesigning our shop layouts and the whole customer experience. So if any of you have been to a last shop before you know that consultations, demonstrations, testing the products, smelling the products um, is, a, is a huge part of the Lush experience. It's all very hands-on, which obviously we're not able to do given the new social distancing measures and safety measures needed for our customers and, and staff. So we're thinking about innovative ways to really engage with our customers and for our customers to engage with our product. We've introduced a call and collect service at most of our shops across Europe where customers are calling in, placing their orders and coming along later on in the day to pick up the orders, which has been really successful. We're also looking at the shop layout and um, how we can make a spectacle of our soaps, thinking about having huge wash basins at the entrance of our shops so that every Lush customer can come through and wash their hands before entering the shop. 
we've got an image here of one of our shops in Germany that reopened last week. And this is um, one of the sort of kiosk style layouts of our shops now. So customers are coming in and our staff are going, selecting the product that they're looking for. Um, it's really thanks to these initiatives and more than anything else, the, the flexibility and adaptability of our staff and our business model that we're now confident about the future of the Lush business. That's it from me, Deb. Thanks, Kirsty. Sorry, I was busy looking at that, um, <laughs> that shop layout and thinking that looked quite an attractive place to be right now. Um, thank you so much for that. Um, I'm now, now we've heard from two global employee-owned businesses, and I know that a lot of you are smaller businesses, maybe not global businesses, just operating in the UK. I'm absolutely delighted that we've got Tony Danker now joining us from Be The Business. Hopefully most of you will have heard of this very uh, innovative partnership organisation. Tony is the Chief Executive of um, a, a force for good driving productivity through the SME sector, I would say, Tony. Um, and absolutely delighted that you are with us this morning to offer a different perspective I think which is a bit of a reflection on what you and your team have learned from uh, the SME space in the last few months so over to you Tony. Thank you Deb, uh, good morning everybody, thank you all for joining uh, and Deb thank you to you and everybody at EOA. Uh, we share the same boss in a way, uh, Charlie Mayfield, uh, your president uh, and the former chairman of John Lewis uh, for many years, is also the chairman and founder of Be The Business, so Be The Business for those of you that don't know us uh, was set up in uh, 2017 uh, to help tackle the UK productivity problem, which as many of you will know, had been sort of running for about 10 and now 12, 13 years, where we had flatlined in our economic performance. And Charlie and a group of business leaders, mostly sort of large FTSE companies alongside the chancellor, agreed that they would set up a sort of business movement to try and tackle firm level productivity. Uh, and we chose very early on to try and focus on SME businesses in particular because the market had plenty of professional services and support and training for large companies, but actually it was the SME sector that we really needed to see advance and grow. Uh, as you can imagine, in the last six weeks, we've had to pivot what we do. Uh, in some respects, what we do hasn't changed. We provide support to owners and managers of SME businesses in particular to help them basically transform their businesses. Seven weeks ago, it was all about growth and productivity. Now it's clearly going to be about recovery. Uh, so what I wanted to do uh, this morning, and I may pick up some of the questions that have come up already, is I just wanted to talk about where are SME businesses today? Because as you've heard, people are in quite different places for a whole set of different reasons. And we've recently done some research with thousands of businesses to understand where exactly are they? What, what's happened when, as we, we say, what's happened when the music stopped? So if it's a game of musical chairs and all of a sudden the music stopped on lockdown, where did businesses find themselves? And from that, I'm going to actually do a little bit of a poll to see uh, whether or not you guys feel you're in the same kind of place. And then I'm just gonna finish with some thoughts about where do we go from here? and What are going to be the emerging trends of the recovery that we hope will start sooner rather than later? So Annabelle, if we can bring up uh, the slides, I've just got uh, two or three slides here. Uh, in the past six weeks, as I said, we've engaged with lots of people and we've really seen through uh, testing, first of all, through qualitative research, I talking, interviewing lots of firms and then testing it quantitatively, 
This sort of segmentation of four different kinds of business, and by the way, this is not dependent on your sector and it's not dependent on whether or not you, know, you need, can do social distancing, you're on or offline. It's more a description of the posture or the strategy that the firms have either been forced or chosen to take. So let me explain them and then we'll do a bit of a poll to find out where you think your business is. Uh, the first segment is hibernators, 28% of firms that we've surveyed. And essentially, it does what you think it is. Hibernators of people who've closed their business. Pretty, I mean, may not have shut, sort of terminated the business, but they've closed down the business. And they've done that either because they're in a sector where actually they didn't have much choice, like hospitality, or they've made a choice that given the financial scenarios in front of them, it would make more sense to close down, furlough almost everyone, and then think about how to bounce back. Uh, so it's not necessarily a state of desperation. It can be a state of planning and doing really good work on the business before you bounce back. So I've, I've mentioned there a case study of Pall Mall Barbers. Uh, Richard at Pall Mall Barbers, he, he runs uh, seven sort of upscale barber shops. Uh, and Richard took a decision. He was doing unbelievably well right up to the shutdown. He took a decision straight away to close the business. Just felt that uh, there was going to be no point in trying to continue. And barbers were trying to do various different bits and pieces from home. He just thought it's not going to work. And he's basically spent most of the last six weeks focused on what he calls his jack-in-the-box strategy, right? How are they going to pop back better? Uh, and his bounce-back better strategy is all about getting the right tech, doing some product innovation, working on marketing, all the stuff that, frankly, he should have been doing all along but never had the time to do. And he's really using the time to get ready to bounce back better. So those are the hibernators. Uh, survivors, this is 32% of firms. It's, it's sort of most of firms, really. And these are firms like many of us who, uh, frankly, are still in the same business. It's just demand has dropped quite significantly. Uh, you know, and, and, and uh, Kirsty and Ed were talking about demand in the main business dropping. Uh, and rather than trying to pivot frantically, what they're trying to do is really just keep as much business going as they can and hoping that demand comes back particularly true for professional services kind of businesses. And I know some of you will be in professional services businesses where, you know, it's not just a social distancing thing. It's even just the sort of the, the, the mindset of people is pretty protective and risk averse and their capacity to do all kinds of B2B professional services or training or whatever might be is just reduced. And so the hope is it comes back. So you want to stay in the game until it does. The third segment, which I think is a really interesting segment. And I think uh, actually Ed and Kirsty, you, you, you'll be able to speak to this, you just did. 21% of firms who've rapidly shifted towards a new product base or a new channel or a new opportunity. Uh, so, you know, I was listening, Ed, to you talking about, you know, construction down, but agriculture way up, so go after agriculture. You know, Kirsty talked about the digital business, you know, being up 300%, whereas, you know, the sales business was down 82%. So you pivot your effort and your initiative against this. Here's a lovely case study, a family business, Dunster's Farm. Uh, Hannah and Tom uh, in Barry uh, took the business over from their parents. And they basically are a food supply business to the school sector. I mean, schools and restaurants is who they supply. Uh, they've been talking for a long time about moving into home delivery, all the sort of, you know, the box delivery of food to, uh, to customers' doors. Uh, and frankly, overnight, 95% of their business went away. And so they quickly, very quickly in days, spun up a B2C website to deliver boxes of food to your homes. And listen, it's not what the school's business or restaurant's business was, but pretty quickly they've built up uh, a, a sort of an innovative business. And to the question, first question that was raised in the Q&A, yes, 
they'd been thinking about it for years, but never had the imperative to do it. And the issue with this crisis is, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So we end up pivoting uh, more than we'd always thought about it, but now we really have to do it. And it's where the opportunity is. And then finally, by the way, just worth stating, there are some thrivers. There are some businesses who are doing incredibly well in this environment, either because they have got a product or service that's in demand, they were already online, or they're working for the health service. Uh, so that's where the sort of four segments we find. There, are, there is about another 12% missing, you have spotted the mathematicians, which are people that have just continued business as usual. So I just want to have a bit, of, uh, a bit of a listen to you now. Just have a little look. We're about to poll you. And whether or not you think you're a hibernator, survivor, pivoter, or thriver. And by the way, if you're like most businesses, you've probably been a bit of two or three of them in the last six weeks. But uh, Annabelle, if we can bring up the poll, uh, hopefully this will work. Uh, and get ready to sort of vote. Uh, we're not going to hold you to this, by the way. But which of these statements most uh, closely resembles your business? So are you hibernating and planning for the bounce back? You can start voting, by the way. Uh, you're fighting through doing business wherever you can. Uh, you're pivoting to new markets or products or channels already, uh, and you're, or you're just incredibly busy because of, uh, of what's going on right now. So if we just take five more seconds for people to vote, uh, and let's see where we got to. Uh, Annabelle, let's see if we got some results. This is always the scary bit to see where everyone is, to see if the segmentation works. Ah, interesting. Lots of survivors, but quite a spread and some thrivers too. It's interesting. Usually there's a, there's a sort of equal mix between uh, the hibernators and the pivoters, which there is on this call, and most people in survivor mode. Yeah, so I think that's really interesting. And therefore, I think if you're in survivor mode, then some of the pivoting opportunities I think are probably worth exploring. Okay, thanks, Annabelle. Let's move to the final slide. And I just want to say a little bit now about recovery. Uh, Look, who know, you know, we're only in the middle of the beginning, right? And we're about to enter a period of a few months where we're tapering, tapering the exit from lockdown. But here are some things just to start to give us a clue about what the next year or two years may look like. And I think they're the themes of the recovery. Number one, there is a huge business model innovation opportunity. It's actually a pretty innovative time. And we know from previous recessions that firms that innovate in a recession do well. They endure. Uh, now, whether or not you can sustain your innovations, you know, whether or not Gripple are going to uh, be doing hand cream for the next 10 years, whether or not Dunster's Farms are going to stick with home delivery when all the schools come back to be seen. But there is that innovation opportunity. And by the way, I, I just spoke to Sir Mark Walport, who's the head of the uh, UKRI, which is the body that champions innovation. And what I said to him is, you know, there's a sort of level playing field now for innovation. It's not the sort of fancy startup tech businesses that are doing all the innovation. It's very ordinary everyday businesses that are innovating now. So that's an opportunity. Theme two technology. Uh, we're all great at Zoom now, but Zoom is not going to drive up massive productivity lifts in businesses. The question is, will there now be a demand for greater use of technology in core business operations? more demand for e-commerce, more demand for you know, cloud-based HR and uh, finance software, more demand for CRM systems and ERP systems. Because people realize that they should and could run their businesses in the cloud. And so that's a really big question and again, an opportunity. Theme three, and uh, Ed mentioned it, resilience. Uh, resilience is the buzzword of the day. You can have a million webinars on resilience, but resilience is a real thing. 
And I sometimes think, again, coming back to the musical chairs analogy, when the lockdown came, it was like musical chairs. And most of the business owners I speak to turn around and thought, geez, is my business resilient enough? You know, financially, have I got the right balance in terms of reserves and the way I do cash flow and working capital? People-wise, you know, are my people resilient? What do I need to do in terms of their mental health, their well-being, their fitness for work? Operational resilience, and a lot of that is around technology systems and processes and whether or not we're resilient. And of course, what Ed talked about, diversification. You know, having new products and, and new channels, you might see that as a growth opportunity, but actually, is it about the resilience of your business? So that if shocks come along again, you're actually in pretty good shape. And then finally on productivity, and then uh, we'll hand back to you, Deb, and, and the panel. Uh, there's emerging a sort of productivity paradox. So on the one hand, there's clearly going to be a big push for efficiency, uh, a push for savings, a push for efficient operations wherever you can drive them. And that should, on the face of it, drive up productivity. We'll be doing the same amount of business, less cost. But at the same time, what really drives top-level growth and productivity is investment. Investment in technology, investment in capital equipment, investment in people training. And will we just be hit by an investment hole where people just don't feel they've got the cash reserves or the risk appetite to invest, which would be a real hit to productivity and quite a shame because that kind of investment is really what drives long-term productivity. So that's what we're seeing. Looking forward to getting into the Q&A, Deb, with you and with everybody on the webinar. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that, um, Tony. Uh, thanks, Ed. Thanks, Kirsty. If you want to join us now, back um, on the stage, the virtual stage, as it were. Um, we've got lots of questions coming in. Um, I'm just going to give Tony a, a moment to grab his breath and a drink, and I'm going to head straight to you two as leaders in employer-owned businesses, because we've got some questions, as you might imagine, from an audience that are invested in employer ownership about what do you think uh, has been the advantage of the employer ownership model um, in getting you where, to where you've got to so far? And is that going to sustain you and give you a competitive advantage moving forwards? A paraphrase there, but that's what two of the questions are asking. So, Ed, can I start with you? Because you've had longest to think about this, um, given that you were the first speaker, and I'm sure it's something that you've, um, you've got a, a view on anyway. Yeah, I'm afraid it's probably going to be an obvious answer to those of us in the employee ownership sector. Um, obviously, um, the... Uh, the trust that we have in all of our employees to keep each other safe um, and the commitment that all of our uh, employee shareholders have to keep the business running, rise to the challenge. Um, massive commitment from us globally for people to continue to come into the factories and get orders out, and probably probably more so than is, is necessary. Uh, and equally, some good commitment, creativity to find ways of continuing to contribute to push the business forwards from, from home. So, you know, that, that engagement and productivity that we enjoy in, in this current environment is absolutely coming to the fore. Just bounce back to Kirsty then. Just uh, again, you've got 10% of your equity in the hands of the Employee Benefit Trust, therefore in the hands of those 20,000 employees. Do you think that has made a substantial difference to where you are now? I don't think it's impacted the journey that we've been on over the last couple of months, but it definitely, definitely offer, offers lots more opportunity for where we're heading. 
So one of the things that we've done this week, um, we were just talking the quote that I mentioned there about being architects of the future and not its victims. We very much believe that if you want to succeed in whatever the future conditions are going to be, then you've got to be part of the design. That's really the essence of that. Um, and we want our employees to be part of that design and contribute. So we've been asking our staff, what do you want to see for the lush future? What do you want to see happening in the business? What are the opportunities that you can see? Obviously, we're looking from a global level, but market in shops, in production, what are those small efficiencies um, and changes that we can make that are really going to have a big impact on the business? So I think just involving them in that conversation and, and getting their contribution is just invaluable. Yeah, Tony, yeah, I was just going to ask Tony. I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to ask a question uh, to all of you, really, around employee ownership uh, and this crisis. Because on the face of it, employee ownership is a huge source of resilience in terms of because keeping people engaged and being transparent are, are the absolute keys to success at this time. But I'm interested as to whether or not furloughing presents a bit of a challenge for uh, employee-owned businesses. Because one of the things we're seeing from a lot of SMEs is the inequities of furloughing. So uh, some people kept in the business when other people are furloughed. And uh, if you're in the business, then you can feel a little bit hard done by because people are at home on 80% and you know, not needing to work and getting their pay. Likewise, if you're at home being furloughed, you're feeling it's a bit inequitable because does that mean, is that a first step towards making you redundant if the business doesn't recover? And so we're, when we talk to some SME businesses, there's quite a lot of tension about sort of how to manage that inequity in furloughed employees. And employee-owned businesses probably have a real sense of equity amongst employees. I mean, obviously formally, but also in, in sort of spiritually. And I just, I'm intrigued as to whether or not people are finding that difficult, that sort of some furloughed, some not furloughed in an employee-owned business, or if actually employee-owned businesses are able to cope with that. I don't know if Ed or Kirsty, you want to dip in first? Yeah, just to come back to the previous question quickly, Deb, um, from an employer to an employee uh, perspective with our employee ownership model. Um, certainly, I think our decision to announce that all employees would keep their jobs, be paid in full, and that we were freezing the share trading and the value of the shares was obviously received by the employee shareholders very positively. And so there is a kind of a mutuality of uh, what the employer and the employee is going through in terms of you know the next 12 months. So I think that's certainly engaged and activated our employee shareholders as well, because that they feel that the business and the, the share structure is going above and beyond to support them too. Uh, in answer to your question, Tony, um, I think it is a good question. We've probably felt that a little bit more in terms of um, those employees who are working from home, who have asked to work from home versus those who are coming into the factories and still therefore taking a heightened risk. From a furlough point of view, um, we've sent a large portion of the workforce home who we have categorised as vulnerable whom the government didn't, and, in the, and therefore we've taken the opportunity to furlough those people. And on that basis, there's not really a debate in the business about whether they should or shouldn't be furloughed because there's not a debate in the business that they, that they should be here even if that they weren't. But there has been some um, need to communicate and manage the perceptions between people who are being asked to come in and people who are working from home. And one of the things we've done to do to, in order to combat that is trying to communicate very aggressively and equally about both what the people in the factories are achieving, but also, and probably more importantly, what people um, who are working from home and therefore less visible are also achieving and continuing to contribute. 
have you been using the furlough scheme in the UK? Oh. Kirsty? Sorry, I thought that Sorry. was... Uh, uh, have, you yes. been, have, you, have you been using it? In, uh, and in answer to Ed's question, have you found any tensions there? Yeah, so in the UK, we um, have furloughed just short of 4,000 employees. Um, I, think, I think it goes without saying that those feelings are going to be there and it's inevitable because everybody wants to know how they can add value. And if they are furloughed or in an area of the business, like in our retail shops, there just isn't anything for them to do at the moment while those shops are closed. So we're definitely seeing that. I think, again, the, the only thing that we've been able to do to mitigate that is just to communicate really transparently and frequently with those, with that, with those members of staff um, mm. and give them things. So this is, you know, trying to put some timescales in place as to when things will be getting back to normal and what that might look like for their area of the business, i.e. How, how retail will re-emerge re and how they can contribute and giving them things to think about while they are at home and furloughed has really been the only way that we've been able to, to ease those feelings amongst the business. Um, it just is an unfortunate reality. I think everybody is nervous about the future of their organisations and their jobs. I think that goes nationwide. Yeah, and totally Sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say, from, from, from our perspective, the issue with furloughing people wasn't about the people who weren't being furloughed. It was the issue with the people who were being furloughed because they were frustrating, frustrated that they weren't going to be able to contribute to the business and us fighting through and our survival. And what we had to explain to them is actually, one, we want you to be at home anyway because we furloughed people we consider to be vulnerable. But two, this is part of a broader business survival uh, strategy so yes we want to furlough you and that's actually you doing your part and the others are doing other parts so um, there's nobody putting their hands up saying please furlough me there's a lot of people who've been furloughed who would rather be in work and, and contributing and you know they see themselves as taking one for the team in that respect yep. yeah, I was just going to add my engagement over the last couple of months with board members and with our membership council so that covers off probably about 40 different organizations what's been clear is that the strategy of using furlough has been accompanied by high levels of transparency of communication, constant communication with those that are furloughed as well, so that there is that transparency and that confidence that's built through that transparency and the trust in the organisation that's also built. So even though I think notwithstanding everything that's been said and the tensions that must arise from people who feel maybe they're putting their own personal well-being um, or safety at risk, uh, let's say if they're still continuing to work in a public facing environment versus those are, are on furlough, there is a broader understanding, I think, because these businesses, like you said, Tony, have high levels of engagement, high levels of transparency. Well, if I just move us back onto the recovery um, conversation, I guess I'm quite keen to understand, and we've had some questions here about specifically how will employees be involved in those future plans? And I think it'd be interesting to hear from Ed and Kirsty what practical measures, given that you have employee ownership, either 100% or 10%, um, can you credibly involve employees in that strategic plan, that innovation that, that Tony's talked about, that is essential? Um, and, and does that differ to the sort of, uh, what you're hearing, Tony, from SMEs thinking about how do they pivot? You know, I think the, the one thing we know from employer businesses is the responsibility to innovate and think and come up with ideas doesn't rest on one person's shoulders. It's spread out. But how does that manifest itself practically? 
So Kirsty, you talked about maybe not employees being involved in the last few months planning, but certainly in the future. How will that work? And we've had a question specifically about that. So we, we've sent round um, an email to all group employees and asking them a series of questions similar to those that I listed um, there about what do we want our business to be, what do we want it to look like in five or ten years time and, and how do we get there and we're, we're asking the same questions of our staff so we're actively requesting that feedback from all of the staff across the group um, so that we can get some collaborative ideas going there and in terms of practically getting them involved in the innovation I think we're all relying on each other there's so many unknowns as to what retail specifically is going to look like for us as I said we're really lucky that we're we're starting to see some of our shops reopening in Austria Germany so we're all leaning on each other to work out what what it really feels like out there um, on the high street at the moment how consumers are behaving you know how we can manage our products better what conversation do our consumers really want to be having what information do they need so we're, we're leaning a lot on experience as it happens and and how you've got a representative body of 400 uh, representatives of that to 20,000 yeah. have they got a different role to the the rest of the employees are they are they going to play a different role in that visioning of the future so our EBT representatives primarily are there to be the link in the two-way communication from the UK board and our EBT trustees to all of our group-wide employees so we have EBT representatives in every shop production room support team office um, we then have representatives for each business area for support manufacturing and retail. And then we have country representatives that then feed into our trustees. So we've got this really lovely blueprint for uh, communication. So when information is going out, we're relying on the, those EBT reps to be talking to those in their business area and constituencies and just getting the conversation going. If they've got questions, they know that they can feed those questions back up through the EBT network to be answered. All of that feedback should really be rising to the top now so that we can see what those consistent themes are um so you've got you've got the, the employee voice coming through the bottom and you've got the we believe statements coming down from the top and that's how you're going to plan for the future what about you ed where does the employee voice come into the future planning around ripples in the future uh well we're looking at we, we work on these five-year planning cycles and um that'll start again in 2021 and uh, not dissimilar to how you just summarized deb um that process starts from a, a ground up perspective with the different areas uh, disciplines and departments of the business starting set out where they think they should take their areas of business for the next five years um, and it comes to the top where we mash it all together and set out a broad framework and then it is pushed out to the business and the employees um, over the course of the next five years to go and deliver deliver their plans and update their plans according to that framework um, and no doubt some of the framework in the next five years will reflect some of the experiences um, of the current situation and some of the reflections I spoke about earlier in terms of uh, working hours and employee benefit package and um, sustainability and what have you. I think, I think it's a real issue, Deb. I, I think it's a real issue with SMEs in particular. I mean, I think what we've seen in the last six weeks is the sort of emergence of a, a CEO hero complex. Where the truth is CEOs of SME businesses have had to take an unbelievably set of big decisions very quickly. You know, probably 20 or 30 big decisions on people, on strategy, on 
finances on premises. Uh, and I doubt they've taken them with full employee engagement because there just hasn't been time. They've taken them incredibly quickly. And, and when you do that, talk, you know, I've been doing little focus groups with CEOs. When you, when you do that, you become incredibly protective of the business. You feel like you've got to steer it through. You feel you owe it to your people to, to get them to safe space. And there's an absolute risk you stop engaging. Uh, and, and the gap between you and them grows. Uh, and I think it's a real trap. And, and, and you know, it's, it's a really interesting moment for employer-owned businesses, certainly the smaller ones, where, you know what? You have to be incredibly directive and decisive and quick at the moment. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily lend itself well to, you know, really good consultative employee engagement. Uh, I um, that I, circle. Sorry. I, I don't necessarily share that that risk, Tony. There's a difference between um, employee engagement or participation in um, in decision making. And as you say, in the current environment, there's been a great deal of that and quite quick. And in terms of planning about how we want to run the business, um, the culture, the priorities. In, in, in the long term. And certainly, um, yes, I would agree from a Gripple perspective, we have had to make a lot of these decisions quickly. We're doing a pretty good job um, communicating about what we're doing and why we're doing it. The feedback I get from the, the, the employee shareholders is that they are incredibly grateful that in this time of crisis, that the executives in the business are stepping up and are making those decisions and communicating. So actually, if anything, I would say that there is less of a gap on decision-making between employees and employers in the crisis, because actually um, the effect and the importance of those decisions um, is really, really direct on a, you know, right now to the employees. So I think there's, um, I, I think there's, there's uh, more, more closeness as opposed to um, distance being created. It's interesting, we had a session on leadership um, during the crisis a couple of weeks ago and uh, Chris McDermott, who's the chief executive of Cambridge Weight Plan, was talking about hoping that he made more right decisions than wrong decisions in this crisis um, and you know, uh, asking for forgiveness, not permission, because there was a need to take some of those really important decisions. But balancing that with the need to engage and finding new tools, whether it's WhatsApp, Facebook, you know, uh, welfare calls going in and out of the business on a regular basis. So I'm sure you're right. I'm sure it's a balance, isn't it, between um, that need to be the CEO hero, as you said, but there's a big trap there that you can easily fall into if you don't let go of that when the time is right. Um, Ed, can I just go back to uh, thinking about the future? Um, you mentioned uh, big picture, talking about your carbon footprint and maybe the working week. And I think you maybe mentioned France as a model. Um, we had a question about that, um, about why, why do you think uh, that France's model is a good one to follow? Well, first of all, I didn't mention France as a model. I don't think you'll ever catch me doing so. Okay, <laughs> okay maybe, um, maybe, maybe the questionnaire has, has, has assumed... The, question, the, the questionnaire is, uh, is an employee of Lodog, I think. <laughs> and I was going to reply to his question by saying that we've been using him as a model for the last five years based on his working week. Um, so there is some, there is, but, but in terms of that bigger picture then about the working week, I guess I, I, you didn't say this explicitly and I don't know if people have interpreted this, but you talked about people working from home and that was really positive, but it was very intense was your word. Um, and that you, therefore you were keen to get people, some people that had been working from home back into the workplace in a safe way. 
but then that led on to this conversation and this thought you having about the working week. So are you talking about just reducing the same working hours into a shorter week? No, no, we'd like we'd like to um, we'd like to, and we've been looking at moving to four days or four and a half days. Right. Um, okay. So same people, same pay, less hours. Okay. And and how does that? From a, a broader business perspective, Tony, you talked about efficiencies and investment, that last point on those four points you made. I think everybody I'm talking to currently says they can't believe how much more efficient working from home is. Um, but your point is, well, that's just one, one part of the formula for the future because you've got to, you've got to have the efficiency. You won't, you won't achieve great things just by efficiency. You've got to do the investment as well. So... What's the what's the balance there between the two? Do you think? Well, Deb, that is the question. I think that is the main question of the next year, which is, you know, on the face of it, it's a great time to be investing in your business. It'd be a great time for the country if we started to have investment in new ways of working, new innovations. Some of the some of the innovations everyone's been talking about, some of the technology opportunities. And by the way, I mean everyone's been good at working from home in terms of online collaboration. But the number of businesses I've spoken to have realized their HR systems aren't really up to it working from home. The CRM system, you know, managing customers, people have still got the Rolodex and the paper files of the customers in the office. They just haven't got them online. So uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's a puzzle, Deb. I can't give you a definitive answer. I think that if you can try and conserve cash and use as much cash as you can to either back the innovations of the last six weeks or to invest in the technologies that can help you, then I think that's important. And I, and I think maybe it's just the way you look at them. So I, I could say new technologies and diversification of products is a growth agenda, an investment agenda. It's a luxury. It's I could do it if I've got the cash. Or I could say, and Ed said this, it's resilience. Right? A second wave, a third wave, a Brexit wave. And actually, if I don't have working from home IT systems across all parts of my business, not just Zoom, and if I don't have a diversified revenue model or channel mix, then I'm not resilient as a business. And therefore, I have to make the case to myself about can I find more money to invest or build those capabilities? By the way, it's incredibly hard because people are going to be indebted. Um, but I think that the, the trick comes down to whether or not you see these things as core to your resilience or whether or not you think they're about innovation and growth, in which case you'll probably put them second, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and core to uh, businesses recovery as well, in my opinion. Um, you know, our, as you touched on, Tony, our, well, my aspiration is having secured these uh, government support loans at good uh, interest rates is to avoid having to use them to trade through the crisis. And by doing so, have some more positive opportunities to use them um, to invest and to drive more productivity and both that growth and resilience agenda in the not too distant future but one of the things that we're absolutely committed to is i want to i want to launch more new products in the second half of this year than we have ever launched in a six-month period before so with my r d team i'm hammering them every day saying get it into tooling because for our recovery in challenging marketing market conditions for our salespeople and our customers i want us to have all of those new products we've been planning for the next 12, 18 months, I want them as quickly as physically possible so we can drive the recovery with them. It sounds like there's a whole, 
either another webinar or a learning session around innovation and how do you create that innovation gene and and some of it I guess is about confidence as well because I think I've heard very often that SMEs tend to lack the confidence to invest you know they're, they're slightly risk averse it's interesting and we've only got a couple of minutes left but it's interesting how many um, analogies are being used at the moment to this crisis and post World War II and it was referenced again this morning in the Times talking about a, a lobby of MPs really pushing the Prime Minister to make sure that he doesn't take the, the foot off the gas in terms of future investment. That investment is crucial and this is now the time where the country needs that investment, with a lot of what you three have been talking about being cited. Um, I need to thank you all and say I'm really sorry we've got to the end. Uh, we're actually dead on 12 o'clock now. Um, it's been absolutely fabulous. I'm sure we could have gone on for a lot longer. I hope you've all enjoyed it. We heard about the importance of resilience. Uh, we've heard about the diversification and the vertical integration um, of, of particularly Gripple, but also the global businesses that are both Lush and Gripple, which no doubt have stood them in good stead for, for, for weathering this storm. And both of those businesses looking at the future opportunities from within their own businesses, whether that's about changes to the working week, uh, reducing the carbon footprint, changing the customer experience. And then we've got that, um, that interesting sort of uh, dilemma about uh, the, the four points that Tony raised for us, which are around uh, the last one being about creating the efficiencies, but also the investment opportunities. So some great thinking there. I don't know if we've answered any of your questions or we've just created more questions than you had previously. There's certainly some data there that I think we'll be talking to you, Tony, about and um, whether we can work with you on releasing some of those uh, results, actually, from our own sector on the hibernators, survivors, pivoters and thrivers, because that's really interesting. And we maybe should do that as a pulse test every few months to see if it's changing. So thank you again to each of my speakers this morning. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the webinar. Uh, just remember that you can keep in touch with the EOA in a number of other ways. Um, you can join this weekly webinar. You can log on to the hub, which is our LinkedIn community, ask questions, start conversations, involve yourself in discussions. You get our weekly EO community newsletter dropping into your inbox every Monday. And of course, you can get in touch with us directly. That's uh, to give us a call or to email us. There's somebody always here who can help. Next week's webinar um, is same day, but a slightly different time. So it's from two o'clock till three o'clock next uh, Thursday afternoon. I'm absolutely delighted that we've got, um, and interestingly, talking about innovation and technology, we've got um, the John Lewis Partnership and the Institute for the Future of Work um, talking about how do you create a productive workforce fit for the future and specifically looking at technology and the cultural issues and the humanity issues of technology. So I really hope you can join us for that. Thank you again to our speakers. Have a good rest of your Thursday um, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.